In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the gold dome. And today we're joined by AJC investigative reporter Johnny Edwards, who spent the last few months working on a blockbuster story that came out over, the, over a couple of days ago about House Speaker David Ralston, how he was using delays in court cases um, to help his clients. And there's some questions about whether or not he, he violated um, state rules by doing that. Thanks for having me. Well, Johnny, tell us about how you came up with the story idea. Well, I can't tell you specifically uh, who the source was, but the victim community in North Georgia is very upset about this. There's been a lot of um, a lot of animosity brewing for quite a while from people who've had their cases delayed because they are a victim of a crime, and David Ralston is representing the person who's been indicted. And these cases get dragged out for years. They have to relive the pain for years. They actually will go to court and sit there and have the judge announce that Mr. Ralston has delayed the case yet again. And it's uh, very, very disheartening and sometimes very traumatic, depending on what kind of crime we're talking about. So that's been brewing for a while. And uh, WSB and I sort of tapped into that and uh, found out this was going on. And uh, we began looking at, well, first thing we did was we filed some open records requests to figure out where Mr. Ralston had pending cases. And it narrowed it down to two judicial circuits, one being the Anoda District and one being the Appalachian District. And those District. are both in North Georgia? Right. They're pretty much, both of them are in the center of, of, of North Georgia. They form the majority of the mountain areas of, of North Georgia. Uh, one's got, I think, uh, three counties. The other one has four counties. Um, Tara Boyd at WSB and I focused on four counties where our open records request showed that we had you know, the most heinous crimes. And we looked at those counties and found a very clear pattern of Ralston as the defense attorney delaying case after case after case, not just in open cases, but we also looked at some closed cases where he had delayed cases for years and years, and they ended in uh, null pros or a, or a plea deal. And it was very clear in the file that, that, that the case had been significantly weakened because of the amount of time that had passed. Like uh, an example might be a, uh, there, was, there was one a child abuse case that dragged on for uh, I forget how many years, you know, rough, roughly years. a decade. I think it was I think it was about eight years or more, um, and then it, it ends with a null pros, and there's an explanation on the motion for, for for dropping the charges that says you know essentially we can't find the victim anymore. The victim's moved away, and 
in uh, you know, it's just you can just, you can get the sense that it's just petered out. You documented a few cases like that where the evidence had eroded, the victims had moved away, um, the, the 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 suspect had moved away. That there was that the prosecutor, a police detective that was involved in the case, was no longer around. So basically, these delays t- end up helping um, the defendant sometimes. Delays and prolonging a case can always help the defendant. I mean, a defense attorney will tell you that a lot of times clients will say, I want this this case to go fast. I want it to be over with. And, and the defense attorney will say, no, it's better to let it sit. I know you want this to be over or have closure, but the longer we wait, the better it is. That's why the, the saying is that a, a defense is like wine. It gets better with age. So, you know, what we found was a pattern where Mr. Ralston appears to be taking advantage of that. And it, it's, a, it's a typical tactic for defense attorneys to delay cases, but usually they have to have some kind of a legitimate excuse and it can be vetted by the judge. They might say I'm on vacation or I got a conflict with another case or I'm sick. But in, in most cases, if a defense attorney did that to the extent Mr. Ralston is, the judge would, would come down on them and, and could even, who, who knows, they could mm-hmm. demand an explanation, possibly hold them in contempt. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of tools in the toolbox for a judge, but not when it's a sitting legislator who's got this law in their corner. And when Mr. Ralston writes these letters and uh, says, I've got a legislative conflict, I can't be there, we don't see anything in the file that shows anybody pushing back. And this is a century-old, what, 1905 or 1908 law um, that's been in the books for a long time, saying that lawyer legislators um, can, can use sort of legislative privilege to ask for delays in court cases while they're in session. But what you found was he used this not only when he was when, when lawmakers were in session, which is generally between January and early April, but also when he was not in session. Correct. The, the law dates back to 1905. I don't know what form it was in then, but basically letting legislators can't be compelled to go to court when they have to be in the General Assembly. And there's a good reason for that. Yeah. You wouldn't want you know, a case to be lost because your attorney was, a, you know, was serving in the House of Representatives. They had to make a big vote or had to be around for committee hearings. Exactly. Uh, and you, I mean, you wouldn't want to be at a disadvantage like that. I mean, that could go the other way. You could have a district attorney who just schedules everything in February to, to win the case. But in 2006, there was an amendment made to this law, or rather an adjustment to the law, and that added the provision that they can also claim legislative leave when they have other duties and obligations. And Mr. Ralston became speaker in 2010, and uh, so that was uh, that was something he had at his disposal when he when he took on the speaker role. Yeah, and um, and it's it's a it's a well-known sort of provision in the law that says, okay, if you have a uh, committee meeting that, that that meets outside of the legislative session or if you have legislative duties, um, but in your case, you found that 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 speaker Ralston um, in one instance was reading to school children or was was giving delivering a speech in Savannah, so not so so duties, but not necessarily uh, part and parcel to his job. Well, that's subjective. Is that so important that you couldn't come to try a case? There were there were a couple of times where he opted out of a of a, of a Monday trial date, which would mean presumably the trial would have taken a, about a week had that trial gone forward. So you know during the ensuing week, we could see things on his Facebook feed or or, or uh, we, you know we could also get indications out of his uh, campaign finance reports that. There was campaign things going on. We saw on a, in a Facebook post that he was greeting Mike Pence during one of these weeks, that he was meeting with uh, my, uh, Brian Kemp when he was running for governor. And there was a couple, yes, where he was talking to middle schoolers either at the Capitol or, or uh, I think at their school. So, you know, that, that, that is technically legislative business. And he's technically doing that in his role as Speaker of the House or as the representative for his district. 
But it's, it's a, like I said, a subjective question. Is that so important that you couldn't come try a case for your client and you know let this victim have closure and finish this thing out with a district attorney? And you talked to defendants who, who essentially said they hired him for that very reason, to delay the case. What was that? You got this shocking quote, I should say, um, from one of the defendants. Talk about that, that, that case. Right. That was David Schell. He's charged with uh, aggravated assault, family battery, and some other things. He's a repeat offender. I, I looked. I pulled his record up, going back to 2000, or, or what record I could find. He's has he's had domestic violence charges, and starting in Crisp County, then in Wilcox County, then he has in his most recent indictment and jailing was in Cobb County, where he had two indictments there for for essentially beating up the same the same person, his ex-wife. Uh, I think she was his girlfriend at the time, and I think she 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 married him later on. But these were just really, you know, pitiful cases where you just see over and over again he's charged with just beating a woman to a pulp, either when she's trying to get away from him or when they get in an argument or something like that. And it was uh, pretty stark descriptions of the type of uh, domestic violence or domestic abuse going on. Well, he got charged again in uh, in 2013, I believe it was, and uh, with with another girlfriend at a camper park up in LJ. And uh, I called him up and asked him, you know, I just said I wanted to know why this case is taking so long, you know, can you explain to me? I mean, I would think you'd want closure. You'd want, you know, this case to be over with. Right, exactly. And we we chatted for a while and he he started talking about who his attorney was, Mr. Ralston, and that he's a politician and that he has to politic, as he said. And uh, he eventually just explained his strategy to me. And what was that? Well, he said he pays Mr. Ralston $20,000 for a retainer fee and that's to handle the case. And Mr. Ralston is, um, because he's a politician, is going to delay the case over and over again. And uh, Mr. Shell said that's just fine with him. That's that's what he wants. And he, he even went so far as to explain to me the strategy, how that causes witnesses' memories to go away and witnesses don't show up or the DA's office loses track of them or uh, the police even might change jobs or go away. And he kind of explained the very thing I'd been finding out in my research, which is how these cases are an advantage to delaying the case. But it's rare that you have a defendant, especially one accused of such heinous crimes, to go out and say it in the way that, that, that Shell did. Well, I mean, he, he had to be interviewed by a journalist to say that, you know. So and I talked to him a couple of times. I called him twice and, you know, to clarify some things. And he was, um, you know, he, he explained it pretty clearly. Um, and, uh, you know, now he's got the, the victim in his case, uh, Jadon Carpenter, uh, she's, um, I got to say, it took a lot of courage for her to come out and, and talk about this. You know, a lot of um, some, some other victims we talked to wanted to be anonymous, which is understandable. But she is, um, she's being front and center in this because she's one of the people we referred, or I referred to earlier, who was just outraged by this and very tired of this. And this wasn't the only case you found. You found case after case, ranging from um, violent offenses to, to lesser criminal offenses, that there was delays and delays and delays, and and in some cases, prosecutors had to drop the charges. Well, right, they they drop the charges or they cut plea deals that are, you know, kind of a you might say slap on the wrist. You know, a good example of that is the Amanda Mosher case that came up uh, in the 2000s, or I think it came to a conclusion in the, earlier in this decade. Mm-hmm. But that was a that was a vehicular homicide case that dragged out for eight years, and Amanda Mosher was one of the first people to ever raise you know raise a public criticism about this. Because she was the, you know, her husband and her uh, four-year-old daughter were killed in that wreck, and Ralston represented the, you know, the, the driver of the other car, and that ended up with, uh, I think, after eight years, he ended up getting, you know, the, the driver got a fine, probation, 
So, you know, that, that sort of shows how these things end. And yes, to answer your question, there was case after case like that in there where it just ended with, like I said earlier, Nalpros or, or even, even still being open now. And, and like there's one case, for example, that's a, a guy charged with enticing a child for, for indecent purposes and furnishing obscene material to, to minors. And, and that, that stems from alleged crimes that took place in 2006 and 2008. So his victims are no longer minors. They're adults. And they're, you know, that, that case has dragged on for a good decade. And, I mean, it's still an open case, but I got to wonder how you could ever try that case now. I mean, it's, it's, the fact that it's still open is, is just uh, eye-popping. Now, what's Ralston's response been? Because you obviously gave him every effort, uh, every, every option to, to respond, to sit down for an interview, to sit down for a TV, televised interview. What did he do? What did he say? Well, Tara Boyd and I tried repeatedly to get uh, Ralston and his people to talk to us about this. We, I, mean, she, I think she talked to them a few times, emailed several times. I even made a call myself and, uh, you know, we tried to impress upon them what this story was going to say and how important it was that we have a dialogue with them and, and let them understand what we're going to say in these stories, uh, short of any exculpatory information. And they, as the stories reflect, did not wish to take us up on that. I mean, he sent, uh, he had his spokesman send us a statement which talked about that he's essentially has a legal right to do this and talked about separation of powers between the legislative branch and the judicial branch and and uh, and that was it. So uh, I and I haven't gotten any response since the story posted online since it went on WSB. I, I, we haven't heard. We still haven't heard from his camp. So he essentially says it was within his 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 rights as a lawyer legislator to do this. But it also takes two to tango. He can write all these letters he wants, but it also takes the judge to sign off on them. You reached out to a number of judges in these circuits too. What did they have to say? Uh, the only judge that responded to me was uh, was Brenda Weaver, the chief judge of the Appalachian Circuit. She initially agreed to do an interview, but about an hour, roughly an hour before it was scheduled, she texted me and said she wasn't going to be doing it because it could compromise any open cases that she has. And I said, you know, I don't want to – I responded back, I don't want to talk about your open cases or the details of them. I want to talk about the general subject of cases lingering and lingering. I never got a response. Um, and I, I tried to reach the, the chief judge over the Enota district, and I tried a couple other judges who have uh, some of the cases I was writing about, and just no response. Now, I can tell you, being at the Capitol the day after the story hit, it was the buzz in the halls of the Gold Dome, under the Gold Dome. Everyone, all, lobbyists and lawmakers were all privately talking about it, but on the floor of the State House, on the floor of the Senate, um, in terms of public comments, there was almost nothing public. No one was, no, no sitting lawmakers were calling for reprimands or for, for him to step down or, or whatever. And this, is, this includes Democrats and Republicans. And there's several reasons. I mean, one is that he's a generally well-liked um, politician who's built bridges across party lines and has talked about the need to moderate some Republican messaging. And he's helped defend a lot of, a lot of his vulnerable House incumbents and, and built, built coalitions with Democrats, too. And part of it is he is also one of the most powerful, in some views, the most powerful politician in Georgia. He wields tremendous power over, over the state um, House chambers in terms of what budgets, what, what spending priorities get passed, what legislators get committee assignments, uh, what legislation ends up on Brian, Governor Brian Kemp's desk. Um, what have you heard about all, all in terms of reaction? 
Like, like I said, the, most of the reaction that I've been getting is from readers and 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 people that aren't you know sitting office holders, but kind of movers and shakers, you know, like attorneys and people in, in positions in the parties. But it's been on Twitter and emails, things like that. I think there's been a lot of uh, there's there's clearly a lot of public outrage, but I'm not sure if that's going to translate into any outrage or even action by people in public offices for the reasons you just explained. You know, the the silence speaks volumes. I mean, that's it's. Uh, I gotta say, I was a little surprised by that that there was no there was no reaction and that no nobody would speak on this. It's uh, you know, there was an interesting column today by uh, Eric Erickson that that talked about that that. Uh, was uh, I think a very well written column. We, um, we we noted in the in the morning newsletter on Friday morning um, the, the, about the deafening silence. And shortly after that posted, we did get our first official response from the Democratic Party of Georgia. This is from a spokeswoman um, named Maggie Chambers who wrote that quote These revelations show that Speaker Ralston has abused his power as a public servant to delay and deny justice for crime victims. As a legislator who has been given the trust of his constituents, he needs to remember his duty and put the needs of Georgia families before his own self-interest. Well, it's interesting that that took how many days for that to come out? About a day and a half after. Okay. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a written statement. I mean, there's no nobody's willing to speak to us and talk to us. Yeah. Look, I mean, it, it, it shows the, the tremendous power he wields and, and also the, um, the coalition building he's made with Democrats and Republicans. Um, this shows the squeamishness of, of elected officials. Um, and also, frankly, some of those elected officials use the same sort of leeway. I, I talked to several um, either former lawyer legislators or current ones who said that they've also asked for delays, but um, they were kind of looking back at their own to see whether or not they've asked for delays for that, that, that went years and years. Many of them have asked for months of delays, uh, especially during the legislative session. But it was the fact that these were, A, criminal cases, not civil cases, and B, that so many of these went on for years that raised so many eyebrows. Well, right. And, that, and that's a different situation. I mean, I would think, I mean, you can speak to this too, but if, if you're a rank-and-file member of the House or the Senate and, and you're doing this in front of a judge, you don't really have whole lot of pull with the judge. I mean, I guess you kind of could, maybe if you're on some key committee or you have the ear of someone strong, but I would think a judge would be a little more emboldened to hold someone accountable if they were doing incessant delays like this and dragging out a criminal case, which is going to be helping their client. You know, they could say, look, Senator, you need to bring me your calendar or you need to, you need to tell me what day you can be in court. I've had enough of this. And I'm, you know, but they're not going to do that with David Ralston. Well, we certainly saw no evidence that they had. There was a case years ago where a judge uh, asked to know where he was, and he gave him a list of things like, I think it was some uh, civic club speeches and and uh, beer wholesalers convention or something like that was on his explanation. But you'd think that would be the first question a judge would have is say, well, okay, you've you've proffered in this letter that you have other legislative, you know, duties and obligations. Why don't you send me another letter and tell me what they are and where you're going to be and and tell me when you can when you can try the case. I and mean, we saw nothing like that in the file. No correspondence. No. No motions, nothing from the DA's office protesting, either DA's office protesting, not, at least not in the files, um, and without being able to speak to any of the judges or uh, or either of the DAs. But let me get back to that in a second. You know about the uh, about what they're doing to do this. I mean, we we really don't know what's been said on the phone or said in in hearings. You know, if anyone pushed back, we just don't know about it. Now, the only DA who would grant me an interview is uh, Allison Sosby in the over the Appalachian District, and that interview was um, 
very short, not very productive. I mean, she didn't seem to, I don't know if she didn't understand my questions or didn't feel she needed to answer my questions. I mean, I was trying to say, you know, these are, you're a prosecutor, your job is to seek justice. And that includes, you know, moving the trial through, through the process, through the calendar. Can you, are you concerned about this? And, and can you tell me what effect this has on your cases and what effect it has on the victims? I mean, I, I don't mean to be flip about this, but you'd think I was speaking Mandarin Chinese or something. It just, it, I, I wasn't getting answers. I was getting these non-answers, these talking points, these platitudes. And I kept saying, am, am, I, am I not answering the, or asking you these questions well? Am I, am I not being clear? Is this my fault? Why are you not, why are we not communicating? So she came with kind of a script. She was going to stick to the script no matter what. I suppose. I mean, I just don't, it's, it's uh, I don't know. I can only speculate. There's just, there's just a lot of uneasiness and a lot of a lot of fear just in speaking to us about this or being open with us about this. So you can imagine what the fear might be to uh, stand up in court and point a finger at Mr. Ralston. But that's that's just speculation, though. I trust this is not the last story you'll be writing on this. So we'll be keeping in touch as you continue to, to delve down this, this path because, um, as you noted, there's some big questions, and uh, we're still waiting to hear a little bit more from Speaker Ralston. Well, thank you. Yeah, we definitely are still going to be covering this. I'm going to be... Uh, working with another reporter on the, on our next installment. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you, Greg. And now let's pivot to another topic. Healthcare, Medicaid waivers, Affordable Care Act, all this fun, and we couldn't talk a word about it without our <laughs> resident healthcare expert, Ariel Hart. Ariel, thanks for joining us again. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me. So we told you last week that this big legislation was going to happen that could pave the way towards a limited form of Medicaid expansion and also a different sort of waiver um, that would help stabilize private health care premiums, right? Yep. I'm getting that right. Um, and now, <laughs> a week later, we have that legislation. We also learned a little bit new about the legislation, about exactly the contours um, that it affects. Yep. Uh, so the legislation dropped with a lot of fanfare. Um, I was there for the unveiling of the details, and you were there for the show of force by legislators with the governor. Um, it's it's very interesting, and maybe the most interesting thing about it is the latitude that it gives mm-hmm. the governor. It gives the governor broad powers mm-hmm. to base it. And, th- and this was kind of um, hinted at, uh, a couple weeks ago, that the governor will be able to get a wide range of options for these waivers, and the options could be as 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 minor as a little bit more flexibility to use federal funding, and as as broad as a major Medicaid expansion. And he's going to be able to pick from a menu of these options which waiver process to move forward with, and the legislation gives him that wide berth to do so. Right. And we always kind of suspected, or um, you know, you had heard from them that, that they planned to look at a wide range of options. They were saying everything is on the table except for a full Fall Medicaid benefits. expansion. Um, but what we really understand better now is they're saying that um, with the exception, which is no small exception, of appropriating money to back up a plan that whatever plan the governor wants to pick should this legislation be passed after he hears all the options from his consultant he can pick it he can pick it um and it also kind of uh included some restrictions in terms of how much money um how much 
income yeah. people can earn, right? And talk a little about that. It's a little confusing. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing. It's uh, confusing to try and explain. But basically, uh, the most important piece of it is they are not going to do full-on Medicaid expansion. And that choice is, as of now, written into the bill. It's written into the legislation. If you want to do full-on Medicaid expansion, you expand it to everybody from zero income to 138% of poverty level, which is about $16,000 a year for a single individual. Um, And that is what was contemplated by the Obama administration, by the authors of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Kemp administration is not going to do that. They are writing into their legislation a limit of 100% of poverty level. Which is about 12000 It's about $12,000 a year for a single individual. And um, so that, that if they chose to go this way, that would include the entire population that is currently without any coverage. Um, people who make 0 to $12,000 a year. For an individual right now, they got nothing. In Georgia, there's a coverage gap, and uh, if they're, you know, not um, disabled or uh, mothers, that kind of thing. And, and Governor Kemp says that while a lot of the talk has been about the Medicaid part of it, the other side of the of the waiver involving the Affordable Care Act and the and the insurance premiums is equally important. That's what he says, and um, you know it kind of depends on what you end up doing with doing with it. But yes, the Kemp administration is asking to do two waivers. One is for Medicaid expansion, or, or not, or, or for <laughs> for something to something do with Medicaid, Medicaid right? Um, and the other is for the Affordable Care Act exchange. They want to stabilize it, um, and you know I think people in Georgia who buy their health insurance off of the exchange have seen a lot of commotion and price spikes and difficulty and the amount they're asked to pay out of pocket. Um, I will say, you know, if you stabilize it right now, that might not be a big surprise because prices have have risen so much that industry analysts pretty much believe that they've reached equilibrium now. Um, So if they just kind of stayed stable, that wouldn't be accomplishing much probably. If they go down, that would be accomplishing something. You mentioned the word, the phrase show of force. That's what we put in our story last week. And it really was. Um, Shortly before the press conference was held around two o'clock on Wednesday, we, we got statements from both House Speaker David Ralston and Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, both Republicans, who um, signaled that they supported the measure. Jeff Duncan showed up with Governor Kemp at the mm-hmm. press conference, and the bill sheet showed just about every Republican in the state Senate signed it. But what was missing and what the, what the Kemp administration was really trying to find was a Democratic co-sponsor. Yep, none to be found. Um, Democrats are at this point still holding fast to the line that full-on Medicaid expansion is the only thing that makes sense. And they might be correct in one of their arguments, which is that the way the law is set up, it could cost the state more to expand the way they're contemplating now um, than it could to do full expansion up to 138% because of the large amount of federal money that you get if you do that. So Democrats, by and large, said, hey, this is a nice step. It's neat. It's nice. Thanks for doing it. But we want to go full on expansion. 
and there's polls, including several in the AJC, that yeah. show a broad majority of voters support that step. There is a political element there, though, which is that, um, you know, obviously, as a very happy coincidence, I'm sure, um, this is being proposed in a way that would possibly take the issue off the table for the 2020 elections. Um, If anything less than the Democratic priority is implemented, um, to their, uh, you know, from their perspective, I suppose, they don't want it off the table. They want this to be an issue that people still consider. Exactly. And and there's concerns from some Republicans, some conservatives um, about this as well. Ryan Kemp and other Republicans have obviously long campaigned against and promised to right. oppose any sort of full-on Medicaid expansion. Um, so some conservatives might see this as a reversal. And, and just others are also worried about the wide latitude this gives a governor, the, the broad powers this gives the governor to uh, essentially pick whatever plan he wants without any legislative oversight. Exactly. And, you know, to be clear, if I'm a Democrat, maybe I'm worried not just that he might do something big, but that he might do something small. He um, has the ability to say, I'm going for it. I am going to spend $2 million on a consultant, and we are going to do a pilot project that will take advantage of the, you know, Medicaid waiver expansion um Um, abilities in the law, and then just do a little pilot project that applies to a few thousand opioid addicts. There, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of possibilities within what they're proposing that lead to uncertain terrain for all kinds of political groups, including Democrats. The governor said he's going to go to publicity blitz, mm-hmm. social media campaign, all sorts of things, um, af- probably after the session ends, to highlight this process. He also said, when asked about whether or not this gives him too much power, too much heft over this issue, he said, look, I'm not going to be the lone ranger. Um, I'm not. Uh, uh, even though this gives me this responsibility, I'm still going to consult with, with stakeholders, yeah. with voters, and with lawmakers about how this process should go out. So we're going to have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, we are. And his aides were very clear in their briefing with us that, um, you know, they understand the power that they're asking for and that they're not going to go and be a lone ranger, that they are going to keep in very close communication with stakeholders and with the legislature. So it's going to be an interesting ride. Well, speaking of lone ranger, we'll let you ride in the sunset. (laughs) Thanks for joining us again this week. Thank you, Greg. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. 
AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.